0: The National Archives podcast series, Dr. William's Library, an early birth registry, presented by Dave Annell. My name is Dave Annell. I'm the events manager here. I've worked for the National Archives for almost exactly 11 years now, formerly at the Family Records Centre. Um, Prior to that I was a professional researcher in family history and I've been researching my own family history since the late 1970s. I've written a number of books, including Easy Family History, available in all good bookshops. That's the end of my shameless self-publicity for today, I promise. What I want to do is to go on to today's talk now. This talk is not about Dr. Williams and nor, for that matter, is it about his library. So obviously I've called the talk Dr. Williams Library. Um, Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? What it's really about is a birth registry which was established in the early part of the 18th century or the middle part of the 18th century really um, by a group of non-conformists and we're going to start just by having a little look at the background to explain why it has become known as Dr. Williams Library when it's a completely misleading incorrect and confusing term. So. First little thing, a very, I, I'm a very pedantic person and I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, Eat, Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Truss the apostrophe is very, very important to me and the apostrophe here is particularly important because it is the library of Dr. Williams not of Dr. William so the apostrophe has to come after the S now some people would then put another S after Williams's, but I prefer, just, I prefer it like that I don't mind, as long as there's an apostrophe and it's after that S I'll be happy, thank you very much I'm also going to talk about another registry which is in many ways identical in terms of the structure of the register and in terms of the um, aim of the register which was set up by the Wesleyan Methodists a little bit later so we'll look at, we'll look at the records of both but to all intents and purposes, for family history purposes anyway the, art, the records are pretty much identical. Having said it, it's not about Dr. Williams Library, I'm just going to give you a bit of background about what Dr. Williams Library actually is. According to their website, it is the Preeminent Research Library of English Protestant Nonconformity and and who are we to disagree with that. It was established under the terms of the will of Dr. Daniel Williams. He was a doctor of divinity rather than a medical doctor. The library was opened at Red Cross Street in London in 1729. Um, It was then, it lasted there until 1865 when it was moved for the building of the Metropolitan Railway. And then it had a couple of temporary homes and then moved to its current home in Gordon Square in 1890, and that's where it still is. It is open to the public. That's the website address, dwlib.co.uk. It's very heavily used by people who are studying and are interested in the history of Protestant nonconformity. conformity So that can include family historians, but not primarily family historians. It's going to be people who are... Who are they're interested in the background to nonconformity in this country, interested in individual ministers, in congregations, in particular denominations as well. There are lots of books there, over 300,000 published titles held by the library, many thousand manuscripts as well, dating from the the, the 13th century right up to the present. So it is a very, very important library, but the crucial point is when we talk about Dr. Williams' library and family history research we're not talking about this normally. We're talking about the registry that bears its name. This will all become clear by the end of uh, this this session. So let's have a look at Dr Daniel Williams himself. Unfortunately we can't look at him because the only picture known of him is held in the the library and there are no electronic copies of it that I could find anywhere. So we'll just have to imagine what he looks like. Um, Born about 1643, probably in Wrexham. No one's entirely sure, but they think he was born there. He certainly left money to the poor of Wrexham in his will, which suggests that is where he came from. And we know that he has connections with North Wales. So, He became a preacher at a very young age, certainly by the time he was 19, he was already preaching. And he then moved to Dublin, he spent about 20 years there, and in 1687 returned, came back to, to London, where he became the pastor of the Hand Alley Chapel in Bishopsgate Street. And he was there, he continued to preach there until his death. He was a very influential person. He had the ear of at least two kings. They consulted him on matters relating to nonconformity. So he was probably, in the late 17th century, the most important uh, dissenting minister. He died in 1716 and is buried at Bunhill Fields, which is, of course, the large uh, nonconformist burial ground in the City of London. So that's the basic structure of, of what... He was. If we go on to his will now, because this is the, the crucial thing for the setting up of the, the the library. His will was written in 1711, proved at the Prerogative Court of Canterbury on the 6th of November 1716. So we have the copy, we have the will here at the National Archives. It was a long will. It says in the will itself that it was contained in six sheets of paper. So if you imagine the size of the sheets of paper they wrote in, it was, it's a pretty big document. And his estate was worth about 50000 which is nearly $4 million in today's money. So not only was he an influential man, he was also an extraordinarily rich man. Um, perhaps the two went hand in hand, of course. His will contains many charitable requests. He set up um, schools and colleges. He set up all sorts of uh, organisations and institutions around the country. But the most important one for us is that he includes instructions to his executors to establish a public library. And I'll just um, read a bit. I mean, the, whole, the whole will makes absolutely fascinating reading. But this is the, the, inter- the section that's of particular interest to us. He says, as to my library, my will is that duplicates and useless books, and I think he means those unfit to be set in a public library, be given away to such as they may be useful to. I'm fascinated to know what sort of books he thinks were not fit to be uh, set in a public library, what sort of books he was collecting. Um, it it uh, does, does make the mind boggle. But anyway, he then says the, the residue I appoint for a public library and I ordain my executors with the advice of my trustees to purchase some or other freehold edifice in some cheap and convenient place without or within the City of London, which sort of means anywhere, doesn't it? I think that everywhere it's within or without the City of London. Anyway, uh, he goes on to expand, give more details about what he wants to do. But that's, that's the actual clause, that's the bit in the will where he says he wants this library to be set up. Now, it took his executors a little while to get round to things, because this was proved in 1716, the year that he he died, but it wasn't until 1729 that the library actually opened. So, really, what we're trying trying to point out here is that there is a library called Dr. Williams Library, this was how it was set up, it's been in existence for nearly the best part of 300 years now, but it is not what we refer to when we say Dr. Williams Library. What we're actually referring to is the registry of births, which, as we will see, wasn't set up for another 13 years after the library was set up. So when we call it Dr. William's Library, we're referring to a building rather than a registry, and we're referring to a registry that was set up 26 years after he died. He had nothing to do with it. It wasn't even in his mind that there should be a registry. So that is a little bit confusing. Um, Another quote from the library's website, it says, although Dr. Williams' library is the main library for the study of religious nonconformity, it has very few records relevant to the family historian. Well, I get their point, but I would disagree to an extent, because I think any library, any historical library that's got documents going back 700 years is going to be of interest to family historians, because there will be documents there with names, with places and with dates, which is what we want. So, I get their point. And I suppose what they're trying to do is to deflect the barrage of people who come there saying, can I look at Dr. Williams' library, please? And they get that all the time. That is obviously something that um, troubles them and takes up a lot of their time answering inquiries that should be directed elsewhere. So I don't know why the registry is called Dr. Williams' library. I don't know why and by by whom or when the name was first used to apply to the registry. But the problem is that it's stuck. And it's going to be very, very difficult to change it now because it's so entrenched. I mean, it's like we would still talk about going to Somerset House to do research. People who don't know too much might say, oh, I'm going to go to Somerset House. We talk about the St. Catherine's House indexes. Well, I mean, St. Catherine's House closed well over ten years ago. The indexes were at Somerset House, then St. Catherine's House, then the Family Record Centre and now disappeared into the ether somewhere but we still refer to them by the old terms and it's the problem with with using things like this that that these terms tend to stick and it's difficult to to shift them. The National Archives own catalogue refers to these as the Presbyterian Independent and Baptist Registry It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, The director of Dr. Williams Library insists that it should be referred to as the General Register of Protestant dissenters which is no better really. The certificates and the registers themselves say things like the register of births kept at Dr. Williams Library Personally, I like something like the Protestant Nonconformist Birth Registry. It's not exactly catchy, but at least it, it, it does what it says on the tin. And remember, as I said before, we're actually dealing with two registries because the Wesleyan, the Wesleyan Methodists had their own registry. That was set up in 1818, so quite a lot later than this one. So a little bit of background then. the The registers themselves... The registers are, and it's important to remember this, registers of births. They're not, they don't have marriages, they don't have deaths or burials, and they don't, generally speaking, have baptisms. Some of the certificates are joint birth certificates and baptismal certificates, but the crucial thing is they are certificates of birth. They record the births, as it says, of around 60,000 people. So that's a lot of people. And in many cases, this will be the only record of their birth. So we're looking at people who were born before 1837 who were not baptised in the local Church of England parish, so you're not going to find a baptism there who may have also been, the baptisms may have been recorded in the local non-conformist chapel but who knows what percentage of those have actually survived. It may be as little as 20% of all the chapels that have been in existence. It may be as small as 20% of records have actually survived. So this is hopefully going to fill lots of gaps for people. The registries were set up as part of a campaign now i 'm going to tell you a little bit more about this in a minute, but it was all to do with nonconformists trying to get official recognition and equal rights it 's almost like a civil rights thing because, as i 'll explain in a minute, nonconformists were very heavily prejudiced against in public life finally the the records of both registries are now held by the National Archives and they can be seen online on this website, bmdregisters.co.uk, and also here on microfilm. You can, you can view the, returns, uh, the registers here. The BMD Registers website has made a huge difference to accessing these records. Of course, remember, let's just emphasise one more time, the records cannot be seen at Dr Williams Library. Right, the history of the registry. Let's just go back, right back to the 17th century. Two particular acts were passed, the Corporation Act in 1661 and the Test Act in 1673, which had the effect of excluding nonconformists from public office. The first one, the Corporation Act, excluded nonconformists from membership of town corporations. Basically, you had to be prepared to take the sacrament according to the rights of the Church of England in order to be a member of a town corporation. The Test Act passed 12 years later, imposed the same test upon holders holders of civil or military office. So Roman Catholics, Protestant dissenters, including Quakers, Jews, were all excluded from public office. If you wanted your children, therefore, to go to university, if you wanted them to become civil servants or to be an officer in the armed forces, in the army or the navy, um, you had to have been baptised in the Church of England. You had to have a certificate to prove that you had been baptised in the Church of England. Not a problem for most ordinary people who were never going to be civil servants, never going to be uh, naval or or military officers, but for upper middle-class families this was very, very important. And increasingly, as the 18th century went on and into the 19th century, particularly with the Napoleonic Wars, this is a time, remember, where roughly a quarter of the population of Britain were non-conformists, a quarter of the population of England and Wales, I should say. Were nonconformists, and of course, nonconformists were going out and fighting on the continent and dying for their country. And increasingly, it was seen as very, very unfair and prejudiced that nonconformists ha- did not have the same rights as as members of the Church of England. Most of the congregations kept their own registers, as I said. Only a small proportion have survived, but they were not considered ex- legally acceptable. For most purposes. Now, I don't mean by any means that they were illegal. So, a record of a baptism in, in a nonconformist congregation, a perfectly legal record, just if you tried to take it to court to prove something, the court would not accept it. It was not admissible as a legal document. Again, the nonconformists thought this was particularly unfair. So, this campaign kept on going, kept on going, and eventually in 1829 the two acts were repealed and non-conformists were given levels, uh, equal status in terms of their their rights. It wasn't then for another eight years until civil registration was introduced in 1837 that this campaign that that had involved the setting up of the registry um, almost a hundred years earlier was ultimately successful because now with civil registration rather than the Church of England being effectively the state's registration service it was now taken over by civil authorities and Everyone had an equal footing. Catholics, Jews, Quakers, dissenting nonconformists, Church of England, all had equal status as far as registering births and deaths. And of course, now nonconformists could, for the first time, marry in their own chapels and have legal records of those marriages. So, 1837 was the culmination of it all when, when their campaign was ultimately successful. Going back again, this actually started in 1727 when the three um, denominations, the Presbyterians, the Independents and the Baptists, set up this rather unwieldy sounding organisation called the General Body of the Three Denominations, which I always think sounds like something out of the dop- out of Doctor Who. Um, I'm sure there was an episode called that. They got together, they started this campaign and said this was what was ultimately successful when the, the Test and Corporation Acts were repealed in 1829. One of the main parts of their campaign was setting up this registry because they wanted to show they could record events and they could make very good records which were open to inspection and open to examination because as we know from using Church of England baptismal registers they are very very poor in terms of the the amount of information they supply you may get a record just saying uh, John Smith baptised son of William Smith you might not even get the mother's name and in terms when when you then try to use those records to prove identity they are very very difficult they don't really work and that was one of the justifications eventually for introducing civil registration because what was in place was simply not up to the job so the non-conformists set up this registry to show they could do a much better job of keeping records. So the registry the once it was established the obvious place to house it was at Dr Williams library this was the the library used by nonconformists. It was a centre of study of nonconformity, and therefore it was a logical place for it to be established. And as I said before, uh, Dr. Williams, uh, the Wesleyan Methodists also opened their similar registry in 1818. So we got these two registers. All the records of the of both registries came to the National Archives via the General Register Office because they were part of the huge collection of registers that was called in by the General Register Office in the early 1840s. So all the non-conformist registers from congregations that had submitted their registers plus all these registers as well were collected in by the General Register Office and are now, uh, now held by the National Archives. Here's a bit of a problem, at least it was a problem before the BMD Registers website came online because both registries actively encouraged retrospective registration So unlike the civil registration system that we have now where you have to register an event within six weeks, they said, don't care how long ago it happened, we want the births of your congregation to be registered. But they were arranged by the date of registration rather than the date of birth. So if you were looking for someone who was born in 1780, you would have to look in the register from 1780 right up to 1837 because they may have been registered when they were an adult. So that made things quite difficult to find. It wasn't a great success, to be honest. If you look at the, the figures there, in the first 26 years only 309 births were registered so it took a while to get off the ground. Eventually they, they did. it did become more popular and as I say, by the end when the registers were closed, nearly 60,000 births were registered. The registers, registries were closed on the 31st of December 1837. Again, it's all part of the setting up of civil registration. They were initially meant to be closed on the 30th of June the day before civil registration started but there was such a backlog of uh, records to record because people realised this was the last chance to get these records recorded so that their children's births uh, taking, part, taking place before uh, the first of July 1837 currently had no legal record of them if they wanted there to be a legal record they would have to register them quickly so they were given up until the 31st of December to register them now I'm not sure of exactly the facts, but I think it's something like a quarter of those births were registered in the last year so there was a huge rush to get these these births registered and you'll see pages and pages on the registers where people are getting all their children registered in one go which is great for us of course because they're all together on the page if you can find them most of the records admittedly, most of the records in the registries are from London and the South East but it is not by any means restricted to people from London and the South East there are people from all over England, from Wales, even from Scotland and Ireland, and from abroad. We'll get some people who were born abroad registered there. The records. Each registry comprises three types of record indexes, registers, and certificates. I've put in brackets the record series that they're held in RG4 is National Archives Record Series, Registrar General is what the RG stands for because they were collected by the Registrar General. If you picture these as, if you're familiar with civil registration today, these are the equivalent of the books that were formerly at the Family Record Centre, the big red books that were on the shelves. These are the equivalent of the registers held in Southport, the actual registers from which they issue certificates, and these are the certificates which they issue or given to the parents at the time. So if if you imagine that, it's exactly the same system indexes, registers and certificates, precisely the same system that was introduced in 1837. Now as I said before um, because all these records are arranged by date of registration it always made them difficult to use because retrospective registration was encouraged. So as I said if you were looking for someone who was born in a particular year you wouldn't necessarily find them in that year, it may be a year later, two years, five, ten years later even. And as I said again, many thousands of births were registered in the last few months of 1837, so lots of them from the 1810s, 1820s, 1830s, all registered in that last few months and all appearing in the registers for 1837. Good news then, the BMD Registers has made uh, website has made access to the records very straightforward because you can now search by name and date of birth. Another way into these is through the British Isles Vital Records Index, which provides access to approximately 85% of the records. Now, the British Isles Vital Records Index, if you're not familiar with it, is a set of CDs produced by the Church of Latter-day Saints. And um, we've we've got them here. It's another way into the records, and if you don't find something on the BMD Registers' website, I would suggest you try the British Isles Vital Records Index. Also, the International Genealogical Index itself has a lot of records from... Dr. Williams library from the, I think they actually call it there the Protestant dissenters registry so you can pick them up now from in a variety of ways in the old days which I remember well the only way into it was through the indexes the manuscript indexes which were arranged in chronological order by date of registration so that by initial letter of surname and then in order of the date of registration and what you found by looking at the index was a reference to a register entry or a certificate. The registers themselves, there are 11 volumes of registers for the Dr. Williams Library registry and three for the Wesleyan Methodists. So again, the registers are arranged by certificate number, but this is where it becomes particularly exciting for family historians. Here's a typical entry, I'll read it out. This is the registration of birth of Eliza Peachy Levitt of the parish of Soham in the county of Cambridge, Tells us it was registered on november twenty fourth, eighteen twenty, by Thomas Morgan. And then in the right in the next column over it gives the parents' names, Elijah Levitt and Eliza, daughter of Stephen and Elizabeth Gardiner. So we have three generations in one entry. We're talking about the birth of Eliza Peachy Levitt, we get her father's name Elijah Levitt, we get her mother's name Eliza. But we also don't we don't just get her maiden name, which is Gardiner, we get her parents' names as well. So three generations, five names on one birth entry, and in fact the entry just below that is for is for Eliza's brother with the, the wonderfully named Gardener Levitt. So you can see straight away. Compare that with the equivalent entry in the Church of English Parish Register, which would probably say, Eliza Peachy Levitt, uh, daughter of Elijah and Eliza Levitt, and that would be it. Now your problem, if you were then researching that family. Assume if, for example, Elijah Levitt was a, a more common name, it might be very difficult then to find the marriage of Elijah to Eliza because there may be several possibilities. Now you know her maiden name. You can also find her baptism because you know her parents' names. It opens things up in a way that Church of England registers just don't. The certificates are very similar. In fact, in theory, they should be identical, but they're not always and it's always worth checking the register entry and the certificate because both should have survived for, for every entry. So they give the full details of the registration, again usually including the mother's maiden name and her father's name, occasionally her mother's name as well. So that's, this is actually an entry from the Wesleyan Registry. And um, I'll just read the whole text because it is, it is just amazing how much information you get here. It says, James, the son of Richard Guest of Astley, farmer in the parish of Lee in the county of Lancaster, and of Anne, his wife, who was the daughter of John and Betty Monks, was born at Town Lane on the first day of August in the year of our Lord, 1820, at whose birth we were present. And we have Thomas Pendlebury, the Surgeon, and Sarah Swindle of Worsley, the attendant. She'll be the, the midwife. So that's the book, the record of the birth. So we've got a lot of information, more than you would actually get on a post-1837 birth certificate, because we've got not just her maiden name, but her the mother's parents' names. And we've got the actual place of birth, Town Lane, so not just Astley, but actually Town Lane, so we get a little bit more detail there. Then we get the baptism. Uh, the 1st above mentioned James Guest was solemnly baptised with water in the name of God the Father, Son and Holy Ghost on the 10th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1820, at the house of Richard Guest by me, Joseph Worrell, Minister. So we now know who performed the baptism and where the baptism ceremony actually took place. Now we have the signatures of the parents. It says, We, the parents of the above named James Guest, do hereby attest the truth of the above record of the birth and baptism of our said son. And it's signed Richard Guest Father and Guest Mother. And then the registration details. It tells us when and where it was registered, the name of the registrar, Thomas Blanchard, the folio and certificate number. Loads of information, all on one document. You might notice as well at the bottom, um, the way it's cut, these nice squiggly lines and then it's cut with a wavy line. I don't know if you're familiar with this but this is what is called an indenture and the reason they did this was there would be two copies of this and they would originally be joined together and they would then be cut. The top half would be kept by the registry, the second the bottom bit would be given to the parents and in order to prove that the document was genuine you would bring the two together and they would join up together and then people would know this was this was legal. A very good way of doing it because it's almost impossible to forge a line and make it exactly like a copy that you don't know the existence of, if you see what I mean. So it's a very, a very good system, worked very well. That is essentially what I wanted to say about the register. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 19th of May 2009 at the National Archives, Kew.